Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. What a privilege it is to be together, to sing together this morning. If you'd please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Galatians 5, and let's read verses 1, 13, and 16 together. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, that we can come to it, that we can read it in a language that we understand, that we can be taken back as it unfolds the beauty of Christ, what he has done for us and how we are to live then in light of his sacrifice for us. Father, we're gonna be considering again your gospel this morning, and if it be your will, I ask that you would bring more to faith to Christ, that you would give us more brothers and sisters today, that you would save your elect in this place. Change hearts and minds, encourage the hearts of your people as we consider and we exalt Christ this morning through the preaching of your word. Father, thank you for Jesus. May he become more precious to us as we consider your word this morning. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, it's a humbling uh, blessing and a privilege to be able to stand before you this morning and to open God's word with you. So as you know, next week is the 4th of July. And if there's anything that Americans know how to celebrate, it is the 4th of July. Burgers, hot dogs, swimming, lemonade, lots of hot weather. And then, of course, lots and lots of fireworks. Americans don't spare any expense. I mean, have you ever gone to one of those fireworks stands and you walk in, you have somebody else walking with you, and this guy goes, he gets two carts, he starts filling it up, but he doesn't fill it up with the little stuff. He's got the big stuff in mind, right? Boxes of explosives, the big finale stuff. And he takes both of those carts and he makes it up to the front to the cashier, checks out like it's nothing, goes to his car, fills up his car, and then heads on home, and you're standing there considering one thing. Do I follow him? Because if I do, then I know where he's going to be on the evening of the 4th, probably, and I'll get a free fireworks show if I'm available that evening. But let's say you, you don't follow him, and in fact, you go in with your little basket, and you go, you pick up five items. You've got two showers, and you've got three rockets. And then you head up to the cashier, and the cashier says, sir, that'll be $99.40 for those five items. And you look at your five items and you look back at the cashier and you think to yourself, so this is the price of celebrating freedom. So you're going to empty your wallet and you head home and you're proud and you're patriotic, right? I mean, have you ever had this scenario happen before? It seems to happen every single year that we go and buy fireworks. It's crazy how much they cost and how much is spent on 30 seconds to a minute worth of celebratory value of of fireworks. But hey, it's celebrating freedom, right? Celebrating freedom must be a big deal if it comes with such a price tag. Americans make such a big deal out of it because it really does mean everything to this country. We have historically been blessed with an unmatched freedom in this world. And we get to thank the Lord for this freedom every single moment of the day because we get to enjoy freedom in this country, which has come to us and is maintained by the sacrifice and the death of many brave men and women. So I say go ahead and buy the big expensive explosives and make some big time noise this fourth. We truly do have much to celebrate as a nation who is free. But in studying this text this week, I've been confronted with the amount of celebratory value and effort 
that we put into our physical freedom while perhaps we miss out on a hearty celebration of our spiritual freedom, of the condition that we were in before we received our spiritual freedom and the cost of that spiritual freedom that we, were, that we received. So to start this morning, I want to bring to remembrance for all of us the freedom we hold if you are a Christian that we may celebrate it for a few minutes, consider why we have this freedom, and then spend the majority of our time considering how we live in light of this freedom. So we go back to the beginning of chapter 5 and look again at verse 1, just that first phrase where Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. I mean, what an amazing, magnificent statement. For freedom Christ has set us free. Paul has spent the previous chapters in Galatians calling out a false gospel among the Galatians that was pers persisting in promoting that keeping this thing called the law could save. But Paul's point has been that striving to keep the Mosaic law, to keep God's moral law, will only result in disappointment and in failure. For the law can do nothing for them except condemn. It's powerless to save. I mean, they could have all the confidence in the world that they are keeping every single requirement of it and yet still tragically fail. But why? Why can't the law be kept perfectly so it can save? And this is where we all get a bit humbled. The law can't be kept perfectly because you have already not kept it perfectly. And when you didn't keep it perfectly the first time or the millionth time, it was because you didn't want to. No different than Adam and Eve in the garden. You wanted your own nature to prevail. You wanted what you wanted, not what God wanted for you. Nobody twisted your arm to get you to disobey the Lord of the universe. You did just fine on your own. You and I desired what was a rejection of the things of God, and we did so. We rejected him and his word time after time after time again. Perhaps committing sins you know you did, sins that you wouldn't admit that you did, sins that you hate that you did, sins that you didn't think that you did, and sins that you are oblivious to. And our debt to God, even from a single sin, let alone the uncountable number of them that we've committed, was so offensive and great that our debt to God was immeasurable. And God said that those who have such a debt deserve, pay, de deserve death as payment, and that would be just. That would be just. And for us, we are guilty of an infinite number of offenses, that even if we died a million deaths, it would be insufficient to pay for the sins we have committed. Oh, re what wretched people are we. For the very nature, for our very nature demanded God's eternal wrath to be poured out on us in eternal death. So what hope have we? For we were bound, captive to the law, unable to keep it so we could experience life, unable to keep, to keep it because we loved our flesh in this world too much that we just didn't care. Our hearts were so depraved that even if life was in front of us, we would still choose our own pleasures that would lead to death. And there we sat, under the weight of sin, the curse of the law, the law itself, and the coming death. And so rises the question, could we ever have freedom? The answer was no. There was no exception. There was no expectation of freedom. Sin was committed. The coming judgment was just. Freedom was simply not achievable. As Paul has said elsewhere, oh, who will deliver us then from these bodies of death? Turn back to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Let me read these two verses for us. Listen to his words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When we were powerless and in our time of greatest need, God came to us and his name was Jesus. And this is what he did. He lived a life without sin. He went to the cross, died, and was buried and rose again the third day. His death was a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and blot out the memory 
of our offenses and iniquities. And when we put our trust in him and receive the cleansing of our sin through the blood of Jesus, everything then changed. And we were given what we could never otherwise have, and that is freedom. For the sobering reality is this, that if Jesus had not intervened to become the mediator between God the Father and us, our souls would still be tormented and afflicted. For there is not one of us who does not recognize that he is more than guilty, and we would have remained in this condition, drowned in despair, had we not been rescued by Jesus. So what do we hold now? What is ours? What do we hold now because of Christ? We hold freedom. And what did our freedom cost? Jesus' life. God had to die for us, his creation, to live. Our freedom was the purpose of Christ's redemptive bloody work on the cross. Our freedom from slavery to the law, our freedom from the curse of the law, our freedom from the spiritual impetus from which the law could never rescue us. Our freedom from the devil, our freedom from certain eternal death. He kept the law we could not keep. He paid the penalty we could not pay, and he won the victory that we could not win. He has won us freedom. And as we're going to get to eventually in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. For it was no emperor, it was no prince, nor president, neither patriarch, nor prophet, nor any angel from heaven, nor even any of you that attained it for us, but it was Jesus himself, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, for whom all things were created in heaven and on earth. He has bought our freedom with no other price but that of his own blood, to set us free, not from any bodily yoke nor temporary situation, but from a spiritual and eternal slavery under the cruelest tyrants, the law, sin, death, and the devil. So forever and ever and ever and ever, for freedom Christ has set us free. That is the cry of every follower of Jesus. Christian, Christ has set you free to be free, so be free. That is Paul's point to the Galatians here in verse 1 of chapter 5. All who believe in him have been taken then out of the realm of the law of sin and death and have been placed then in the realm of freedom. For you see, our redemption is not merely rescue from something, but rescue for something, for freedom in Christ. For the destination, the goal of Christ setting his people free was for a state of eternal freedom. So what does it mean now to be free for freedom? A few thoughts. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, it means you are no longer a recipient of God's wrath. And now you may walk, even more, you may run into God's presence, having unfettered access to the one who adopted us as sons and daughters, no longer objects of his wrath, but instead his beloved children, calling him Father, expecting him to treat us in the way he has promised to treat us, as children who for freedom have been made free. It also means that instead of sin and death, God grants you righteousness and eternal life through Jesus. In this way, he exchanges in your conscience the yoke and tares of the law with the freedom and the reassurance of the gospel that says, take heart, my sons, your sins are forgiven. It also means instead of being a lost orphan, you have a good father. You may have fellowship with God, having been brought from death to life. The fetters of sin are gone, so you might enjoy him. You might serve him. You might love him. You might live in a way that you never could otherwise. You may live in a way that pleases him. It also means that instead of working for something you can never earn, you can rest in the free grace of God. He demands no payment. He does not say, you must bring so much, and then you shall be set free. You are free by God's decree. There was no vote. There was no discussion. There was no vacillation, no weighing of the evidence of your life. Jesus bought and paid for you with his life. And so there is certainty in your salvation. There is certainty in your freedom. 
It also means that in your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your expectations, your affections, that all of that has now changed. And now they could be fixed upon your Savior and Lord Jesus. That is the freedom that we get to hold. That is what we cannot fail to celebrate again and again. That is what we cannot forget, that how great are depravity, and yet how much greater than our Savior. Let me pause here, though, and point out a tragedy that I think is among us this morning, and that there's some here who have never tasted that freedom, and you are still under the law. You are struggling to be good enough and feeling like you can never be good enough. Let me re reassure you of this. You're right. You can't be good enough. And instead of heading for eternal life, all of your labors are keeping you on the path straight for the eternal wrath of God. So I plead with you this morning to repent of your sins, to believe in Christ's finished work on the cross, and then you will join those around you who, have already, who are already enjoying freedom, who have already been made free. So come and join us in holding freedom so we can have even more brothers and sisters declare together for freedom Christ has set us all free. So Christian, though, praise the Lord that we are set free. The question that should arise is, but what now, right? How do we live in light of the freedom that we hold? What do we do when we see the word freedom? Is this liberty just code for license? Freedom to do as one pleases? See how Paul addresses this head on in verse 13 of chapter 5, where he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh wants freedom to express itself as it will, but Christ has not called the believers for such a freedom, an unfettered pursuit of the flesh, but to serve him. Freedom is emphatically not autonomy, the free to be and do whatever we want attitude. That, that just governs ungodly thinking. The freedom that Christ has won for us and to which we have been called by God is a freedom to be what God originally made us to be. Because of who God is and what he has done for believers in Jesus, Christians are now called to become what they are. That is to make visible in the earthly realm of their human existence what God has already declared and sealed in the divine verdict of justification. For true freedom in the Christian faith is only found in service to Christ and others, which is carried out only by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So how do you live in light of this freedom that we hold? If Christ has set you free for freedom, how do you live free? I believe the answer is given to us in Galatians 5, 16 through 25. And I'll give the answer to start. And the answer is this. By keeping in step with the Spirit. How do you live free? By keeping in step with the Spirit. Paul moves to this free living and we come to verses 16 through 18, which says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So Paul gives us a truth. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not indulge in the flesh. In our freedom that Christ has granted us, we can now take a new path. Where before it was, the only, it was only the path of flesh that we could take, now we have the path of the Spirit. That path is open to us. And the Scripture calls us to walk by the Spirit. And that means this. It means that every moment in fellowship with Christ must be ruled by the Spirit. And the walk is two-sided. Yes, the Spirit is the one who arouses your effort and equips it to put all of its forces into the service of the Spirit, but He does not make your efforts unnecessary. Paul is telling the Galatians that you must walk by the Spirit. 
a continuing condition, an ongoing action. Well, that seems easy enough, but we know that it isn't. And why is that? Because of what Paul says is pitted against each other in the believer. While, there are, while, while we are still in these bodies and on this earth, there is still the flesh to contend with. For while we are in these bodies, there are two warring, competing, opposite forces vying for, desiring for your daily life as a Christian. Despite our freedom granted to us, there now rages every second of every day an inner conflict, an inner battle between the way of the Spirit and the way of our flesh. If our flesh was a raging, rabid animal before salvation, it's not like our flesh all of a sudden becomes a cute kitty that curls up in a corner and goes to sleep. No, I mean, it remains a raging, rabid animal after salvation. But now it's even worse as the maniacal animal has been forced into the corner and, and its entire existence is being threatened. You think it's just going to lay down and not be a force to reckon with? You're terribly mistaken if that is your perspective or if you don't take this savage animal we call the flesh seriously. Paul's clear point is that the catalyst to righteous living, this way of living in freedom, only comes through daily walking with the Spirit. And you must be a willing, active participant in that walk. You must choose which path you will take. Pursue the Spirit or go back to your flesh. There are not three paths for daily living, only two. And you are always on one of those two paths. The Spirit will strengthen you, enable you, encourage you, and at times even carry you. But there is your part to play. This doesn't work without you too. But again, hear me. You don't win this battle against the flesh in your own strength. But you win it in His strength. This is how you remain in His freedom. Okay, so that's all great, right? I have my freedom. I'm to walk by the Spirit. But how do I do it, Paul? Are there specific ways that I can test whether I am walking by the Spirit? So let's consider Galatians 5, 19 through 24 as we seek to answer these questions. In these upcoming verses, I see Paul provide us three tests by which we can assess our lives to help us with how we walk by the Spirit and determine whether we are living in Christ's freedom. I'll present these three tests in the form of three questions. The first one being, do you observe your flesh being manifested? Second, can you see the fruit of the Spirit being produced? And then third, are you conducting a daily crucifixion of your flesh. So let's tackle the first test. Do you observe your flesh being manifested? We show what we are pursuing, and it can't be the works of the flesh, but it might be. As we said earlier, our flesh now is like a cornered raging animal that is seeking to pull you back and devour you. It seeks to produce in you an anti-God behavior. So what are these works of the flesh? Well, Paul gives us a list and says that these works are plainly evident. It's not hard to see what are works of the flesh and what, are, and what is the fruit of the Spirit. All of these works of the flesh have a central focus, and that's you. And as we will see the fruit of the Spirit, that focuses others. You will begin to see the works of the flesh more readily when you see the central focus of your actions. Is it you, or is it others? Paul's list is not intended to be all-encompassing, for the full list of sin is overwhelmingly numerous. But let's just look at verses 19 through 21 and the list he has given us. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. So these are all works that are contrary to living in right freedom. They are devoid of true freedom, and yet we often find ourselves here. Paul ends this list by writing, and things like these, 
Meaning that you can't just look at this list as a mere checklist. The passions and desires of the flesh is the entire dominion of sin. Brother, sister, are these works marking your life? If so, I'd ask you why. What is your excuse? You have been made free for freedom. Not for this. Not for these. All of the pastures of glory and service to Christ are yours to freely graze. And sometimes we find you here. Christian, you have to run from your flesh. It may give you temporary pleasure, but if you persist in walking in the flesh and become overcome by it, then you have to answer this pivotal question. Have you ever been made free? Look at the end of verse 21 where Paul gives us a sobering word. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. As Paul has done with the Galatians, we need multiple warnings as well because everything is at stake. Should you persist in the flesh without repentance, a turning from your sin, then the inheritance reserved for God's children is not present. It's out of reach and not available for those who do the works of the flesh. For God's kingdom has no room for these works. His kingdom is one of godliness, of righteousness, of service to him and complete devotion to him and his ways. So Paul's words then would make sense that those who indulge without repentance in the works of the flesh will be excluded from the kingdom. For the habit of these works give the evidence that you have never been set free. But before we embrace the tendency to run away with condemnation and shame and judgment, I want you to remember that this battle against the flesh happens in the beloved, in the child of God, in the one who has been set free, even in the one who has the spirit. This battle rages in the hearts and minds of those whose ultimate war has already been run, already been won by Christ's finished work on the cross. But until eternity comes, here we are on earth with these two ways of living warring against each other. Paul knows that indulging in the flesh will happen sometime, even for the believer. But the prayer, the exhortation, the encouragement is that when we act in the flesh, that we would repent of those deeds and strive again and again by the working of the Spirit to continue to walk by the Spirit. So go battle against these works of the flesh by the power of the Spirit, for your freedom has no place for the manifestation of the works of the flesh. Christ has set you free for freedom, for love, for righteousness, for joy, not for this, not for these. Again, I ask, is your flesh being manifested? If so, repent and return to Christ and His Spirit. Trust that He will forgive as He has promised, and don't ever, ever go back. But if you do, if you go back, repent, return to Christ and his spirit, trust that he will forgive you yet again, as he has promised to do, and don't ever go back. So we've considered our first test of whether we are walking by the spirit and the freedom we hold by asking the question, are the works of the flesh being manifested? And now we come to our second test. Can you see the fruit of the spirit being produced in your life? When in the realm of freedom and when embracing the way of the Spirit, the Spirit produces a different way of living for the child of God, a way that is contrary to when you were under the law and held under its curse. Prior to Christ's freedom, you lacked the Spirit and thus you lacked His fruit. But now again, everything has changed and these graces of the fruit of the Spirit are yours to embrace and to see produced in your life. This Spirit-produced way of living we find in verses 22 through 23. Follow along as I read them together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Ultimately, the fruit of the Spirit is what we have been made free for. 
Freedom to love, to exude joy, to manifest peace, to display patience, and so on. This is the life God purposed for us in the garden, the life we will return to in glory. And all who have their faith in Christ get to experience it now by the enabling power of the Spirit. So are you producing the fruit of the Spirit? I'm going to propose brief thoughts about each of these parts, or what I call graces of the fruit of the Spirit, as you assess your own life. Unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack all of these individually, but I just want to read the list again, offer some definitions. I'm going to have them on the screens behind me. And as I do, I want you to reflect upon them in your own life. Consider these graces carefully. Are they being produced in your life? So let's look first. What about love? Love is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of another person, showing honor to the other person, preferring them over you. What about joy? Joy is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction because we know that God has and will accomplish his purposes in our lives. What about peace? Peace is freedom from enmity with God as God has joined together God and you through Jesus Christ. The war with God has ceased, in other words. Possessing peace is being single-hearted, having one heart with him, for our peace does not come from the absence of troubles, but from the presence of Christ. It is a state of being. And good relational standing with God then necessitates good relational standing with one another. What about patience? Patience isn't something you can do as much as it is something you can be. Instead of being more of an outward expression, it is more of an inward restraint. It is a state of emotional and spiritual calm in the face of provocation and misfortune without complaint or irritation while waiting for the return of Jesus. What about kindness? Kindness is a supernaturally generous orientation of our hearts toward other people, even when they don't deserve it, do not love us, and are not kind to us in return. Kindness is shown with your entire self for another person. Then we come to goodness. Goodness is virtue and holiness that acts for the benefit of others. It characterizes a life with deeds and actions motivated by righteousness and done with a desire to be a blessing for others. Then we come to faithfulness. Faithfulness is steadfastly and carefully keeping the relationships with God and others that we have been entrusted with. Fidelity to God and others, in other words. It is continual and is singular in application, meaning that in a relationship, nothing else is allowed in that relationship. Then we come to gentleness. Gentleness is power restrained by one who is not overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, also known as meekness. It is restraining our potential, real, or perceived power so that the other person might be dealt with tenderly. We come to our last one. What about self-control? Self-control involves moderation. It involves constraint and the ability to say no. To live self-controlled is to live dignifiedly, not out of control. Do you see these graces of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? As Christ has freed you, so you have the Spirit with you, so he beckons you then to come and walk every moment of every day with him that he might produce in you his fruit. For as we've said, it's not enough to yield passively to the Spirit's control, but we must also walk actively in the Spirit's way. So I want to encourage you with three observations about the Spirit's production of fruit in your life that change, growth, production in your life by the Spirit is inevitable, it's gradual, 
and it's symmetrical. So now that you've been set free by Christ, right, you've been ransomed, redeemed, and adopted, you, you have the Spirit, you will produce then His fruit. It is inevitable. You will be joyful. You will be kind. You will be patient. Why? Because if you are a child of God, then you have the Spirit, and you will walk by the Spirit because you must. Your desires, your aims, your passions have now changed. He is the gardener of your heart, the master caretaker, and He will tend it, and He will prune it, and He will care for it as only He can. And growth then will happen. It has to under his loving attention. Take heart then, for if you are Christ, then the Spirit will do his work as you walk with him. And the conclusion is that godly change in your life is inevitable. But sometimes you may feel like, I'm just not seeing anything really happen in my life. I'm just not growing. There's a couple of different reasons maybe you might be feeling like that. Let me address this one first. And to keep with the botanical theme let me ask you, are you bringing the water? Are you bringing the fertilizer, the bug killer, the weed removal tools to the garden of your heart? Since this is work you do in cooperation with the Spirit, are you expecting growth in the fruit of the Spirit and godliness when you aren't reading God's Word? When you aren't in prayer? When you aren't in consistent fellowship with your brothers and sisters? You aren't taking seriously what you intake during the week? You aren't being intentional about how you prioritize your life? Or maybe you are doing these things somewhat, but you're really not putting enough effort into this Christian walk of yours. I mean, how can you expect growth and yet minimize or reject the means by which God has gifted us to grow in the knowledge of Him and godliness? So bring yourself to the Word, to prayer, to fellowship, to sound preaching, to intentional living, to right priorities. Walk by the Spirit, and you will watch then as the Spirit produces His fruit then in your life. Well, maybe you are striving to be faithful in these things. And praise the Lord for his enabling strength in your life, but maybe you feel like you still aren't seeing much growth, or you aren't seeing at least as fast as you thought you would. So let me also say then that while his godly change in your life is inevitable, the Spirit's change in production in our lives has proven and continues to be gradual. Paul doesn't say nor suggest that our production of the fruit will happen perfectly overnight, and in fact, he implies the opposite. You walk by the Spirit every day, and then change will take place. This implies a lot of time, effort, setbacks, consistency, inconsistency, mountains, and valleys. I want us to consider Paul's usage of the word fruit. Botanical growth is most often gradual, if not always gradual. You can never really see it happening. Let's take a fruit tree for an, for an example. You stand there for minutes, hours, days, and you come to the same thought. I never saw it grow. I never saw it actually change. I mean, it was a sapling, and now it appears to be a full-grown tree, but it did all of that, and I, I really didn't see it grow once. Well, why is that? How come you can't see the growth of the fruit tree? Because it's that gradual. It's that slow. But you know that growth had happened, even if you can't see it. As such, we can conclude that growth can only be measured, can only be tested and compared instead of being seen. You know it has grown because it is not the same height as it was last year. It's actually producing fruit this year. It actually has leaves on it now. You know it has grown because you can measure it against a state or size it was in some time in the past. And I'm going to say Christian growth is often very gradual. Yes, while your salvation is immediate, your sanctification, though, is godly change over time. And it's gradual, which is why we have to be patient then with the Spirit's work in our lives. Now, sure, during certain seasons, fruit trees may grow quickly, but then other times they appear to not be growing at all. Consider wintertime. 
But just because you can't tell that they are growing, it doesn't mean that they have actually quit growing. In the Christian life, while it is inevitable that there will be growth in the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the growth might be so gradual sometimes that you feel that it is not happening. You've got to understand this, that you never feel growth. You can't feel it when you are growing physically, and you can't feel it when you're growing spiritually either. Remember, you can only measure it. You can only test it. So how do I know then? How can I measure? How can I test my growth? It's wonderful to be able to measure and test it, but I'm also going to say don't wish for too much in answering those questions, for you will find that the greatest tests and measurements will likely come when situations annoy you, when they frustrate you, when they anger you, when a trouble comes, when a trial comes, when a really, really, really sad situation comes and you are broken, and then suddenly you respond and you act in a certain way and you say, wow, a couple of years ago, I would have never responded in this way. I would have never been that patient. I would have never shown that kind of love. I would have never exhibited that kind of self-control. I would have never known what, e- what joy even looks like in this, uh, in this kind of situation. But you can tell now that you have grown because you have a comparison, you have a measurement. Even if, it didn't, even if you didn't see the growth happening, it has been happening. So don't get discouraged. Be patient with your growth as you walk by the Spirit. It will happen, albeit gradually. That leaves one remaining observation as we think about the fruit of the Spirit, and that is that the inevitable and usually gradual growth of the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian's life will also be symmetrical. What do I mean by this? What do I mean by the word symmetrical? Well, if you look back at the text, we have a subject that is singular, fruit, and we have a predicate that is plural, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. What is Paul doing? Why didn't he write that the fruits of the Spirit are How come we didn't write them as individual characteristics that separately mark our lives in the Spirit? I think it's because Paul is trying to show us something incredibly important, and that is that the fruit of the Spirit is one, that all of the graces are connected together and mutually dependent upon one another. This is called the concatenation of the graces. So what does this really mean? Well, briefly, it means that all of these graces always go together. They always depend upon one another, and they are implied in each other. Where there is one, there is all, and where one is lacking, all are lacking. Where there is love, there is joy. Where there is self-control, there is peace. Where there is kindness, there is patience. And then the opposite is true as well. Where there is no goodness, there is no faithfulness. Where there is no peace, there is no love. You cannot have one and not have all the others. And importantly, you cannot have one grace more than all the other graces. I can't have more self-control than I do love, more peace than I do gentleness. If you do, then you're merely showing a counterfeit grace. They will all be produced at the same level at the same time. So here's some examples about how this works out with just two of the graces. Let's look at love and then gentleness briefly. Let's look at love first. Can you say you love someone and yet have no patience with them when they are wearing on you? Can you say that you love when you have no self-control and respond to a situation without a filter or with mean comments? Can you say that you love when you have no gentleness in your response, your actions, or your attitude towards a brother or a sister? Let's consider gentleness. Without love, gentleness is just a false care for another. Without self-control, gentleness is just being passive-aggressive. Without patience, gentleness is just forced, bitter waiting. Without kindness, gentleness is a lie. So as we look at these graces, please don't be thinking, how can I love more? How can I have more joy? How can I have more patience? Sure, you can meditate on one or another, but because these graces are symmetrical, you need at some point to think bigger than that. You need to think, how can I embrace the way of the Spirit? 
How do I improve in my walk with the Spirit? How can I be more consistent in my, in my walk with Him, more intentional, more dedicated? And then you can expect all of the graces to manifest themselves regardless of the circumstance as you walk by the Spirit. For you see, the production of the fruit is not up to you. You seek the Spirit. You seek to walk by the Spirit. You seek to keep in step with the Spirit. Then watch as you respond by default with the fruit of the Spirit as He produces then His fruit in your life. When this happens, you'll be able to see that you are then living as free daughters and sons of God. So do you see yourself producing or have produced the fruit of the Spirit at least a little in your life? If so, praise the Lord for His sanctifying work in your life. Keep walking with Him and watch Him work. So as we continue to consider how we live in light of us being free in Christ, we have considered the questions Do you observe your flesh being manifested and can you see the fruit of the Spirit being produced? And so we come to our final test that Paul gives to us. And this last test also requires our participation. And that is, are you conducting a daily crucifixion of your flesh? So having just laid out the fruit of the Spirit, Paul then adds in verse 24, which says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So those who belong to Christ, who have been ransomed by him, who have been adopted as his sons and daughters, who have been deemed by him, as we've discussed previously, those who have the Spirit, been made free for freedom, those who belong to Jesus, what have they done? They are the ones who have crucified then the flesh with its passions and desires. Because this is what all true Christians strive to do. Under the influence of the Spirit, they seek to mortify the flesh. They endeavor to completely and utterly abandon their old mode of thinking, feeling and living so that they may be all Christ. The initial question we need to answer about this crucifixion is this. Is this crucifixion something that is done to the Christian or the Christian does to himself? To answer that question, we need to compare Galatians 2.20 with this verse. So if you want to turn back to Galatians 2.20, I'll read the verse for us. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, you're going to see that it's similar to our passage, but here's the difference. The crucifixion of the flesh in our text this morning is not what is done to the Christian, as in Galatians 2.20, but rather by the Christian. To be clear, this work of crucifixion of our flesh is not a condition of or a part of our salvation. Our salvation is won by Christ and Christ alone on his cross. What Paul is getting at is after the finished work of Christ on the cross is applied to us by Christ through his spirit, then this is what we do in cooperation with the spirit after salvation to put to death our flesh. As true Christians earnestly desire and constantly seek their flesh's complete extinction. I mean, those who are free do not merely look at different works of the flesh and they hate some less than others. We are talking about a complete disdain for the, for the flesh in its entirety itself. Paul is saying that we, the Christians, are the agents of this crucifixion in our personal lives. It is our daily putting to death the flesh through the disciplines of prayer, studying the word, repentance, meditating on the word, gathering with the saints, serving the body, and things like these. I mean, Paul's borrowing from Jesus' word in Mark 8, 34, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul is getting at this same image of self-denial through the image of a crucifixion. And the image goes like this. Every true Christian must go like a condemned criminal 
and carry our cross and bring our flesh to the place of execution. But that may be where some of us stop. But it is not enough to bring our flesh to the place of execution, but when they're on our crucifixion mount, we must see that the execution of our flesh actually takes place. Metaphorically speaking, we are to take our flesh to the cross, nail it to those pieces of wood, and crucify it. We are to kill it there. Let it die. But wait, we may say, I kind of like my flesh. I kind of want to keep it around. Yeah, sure, it belongs in my basement, but I'll never go down there. And I promise to keep the door locked even. I won't go. I promise. I just think it's too bad for it to kind of be not just kind of hidden away. I'm going to tell you that Paul would vehemently disagree with you if that is your perspective. But here's the scary part. That may be how we live, and that may be how we sometimes view our flesh and sin, that we can kind of keep it around. Here is the perspective that Paul would have us take. Go crucify your flesh until it's dead. It is evil, shameful, and repulsive. It deserves no better fate than crucifixion. It doesn't deserve a second chance. Sure, it might be persistently painful. It's not unreasonable to expect that the rejection of our old self with all of its tantalizing pleasures and seductive enjoyments is painful. I mean, you're killing the self that you once loved, that you once adored. It's all that you knew. That's neither easy nor without extreme discomfort. It's painful, and this pain doesn't end today or tomorrow, but it continues all of our days as we are housed in these earthly bodies, but all of that doesn't matter. The crucifixion must happen, and it must be decisive. When we begin to shift away from this commitment, our propensity is to help our flesh off of the cross and put a stop to the crucifixion, but that's in total opposite to the whole point of a crucifixion. We know that death by crucifixion was a lingering, painful death, but it was also a certain death. The Roman criminal did not survive his crucifixion. And we have nailed our flesh to the cross to experience the same, a certain death. It must not survive. I mean, just consider the effort that was put into a Roman crucifixion for a moment. You had soldiers, multiple of them, forcibly bring a criminal to the cross that was made for him. Then multiple soldiers made the criminal be on the cross, tied or held him down until they could nail the nails to the wrists and feet. And then they hoisted the criminal up in the air as if the criminal could go somewhere Soldiers would then stand guard to make sure they couldn't escape. And then even to make sure death actually happened, they would go around and shatter the bones in the criminal's legs to ensure death. That same amount of effort and resolve must be how we crucify our own flesh with its passions and desires. For you see, there is no shortcut, no spiritual quick fix, no easy path that we can take the place of consistent, obedient, vigilant renunciation of the world and the mortification of the flesh. There is no truce to be had with your flesh. There is no day off from a renewed attitude and commitment to leave our flesh nailed to the cross. There is absolutely no negotiation that can take place between walking by the Spirit and the indulging in the flesh. The Spirit, with us walking by the Spirit, is engaged in mortal combat with the flesh, and together we must battle it to death. Let me briefly address the besetting sins those sins that we, com- we keep coming back to. Commentator John Stott said, the first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. So I want to look into just a little bit what that, what that means. If we have besetting sins persistently plague us, it is either because we have never truly repented or because having repented, we have not re- maintained our repentance. Think back to this cross where your flesh is being crucified. 
Having besetting sins is like you keep returning to the place, the scene of your flesh's execution. You begin to touch it. You begin to feel for it. You begin to long for its release, and, per- and perhaps you long for it so much that you even begin to take it down off that cross. When you are about ready to re-engage with impurity, when you are about to stir up strife, when you are about ready to embrace jealousy, when you are about ready to indulge in fits of anger, then remember the hammer that nailed the flesh to the cross at the beginning, and you take that hammer, and guess what you do with it? You nail those nails even deeper into your flesh. And in fact, have the resolve to get a few more nails and hammer away. Keep the crucifixion going and going until the execution is complete. Having this mindset that I have crucified the flesh, I will never draw the nails. And here's the great news. You ready for the great news? You can do it. You can crucify your flesh. Because you will be walking by the Spirit and He turns your weakness into victory. So if you are walking with him, being led by him, if you are Christ and truly free, then the question is not if the flesh will one day die, it's only a matter of when. United with Christ, you can kill the flesh. You are not being perfected by your efforts, but by the work of the Spirit that enables, empowers, encourages, and equips you. Have have that confidence then and keep it up. You belong to Jesus. Until you see him again in glory, keep your flesh on that cross. And when you take a nail or two out, Fly to him again and again and seek his forgiveness. He has promised to forgive. And then by the Spirit's power, nail it back to the cross. For the Spirit is always, always, always sufficient for the victory over the flesh. So I ask again, are you conducting a daily crucifixion of your flesh? You need to in order to live free. So how are we doing? How are you doing at living as people who are free, who have been set free for freedom? Do you observe your flesh being manifested? Can you see the fruit of the Spirit being produced? Are you conducting a daily crucifixion of your flesh? Are you walking by the Spirit? And then we come to verse 25 to wrap up our time together. Look at it with me. Verse 25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we have... Consider this morning that the life of freedom as a Christian must be a spirit-dominated existence that fundamentally characterizes you. Paul's idea then in verse 25 is that you cannot sit back contently and only think to yourself, yes, I am indeed living by the Spirit, when you should also be asking this question, am I keeping in step with the Spirit? Your primary con- Your primary concern when living by the Spirit is then to keep in step with the Spirit, constantly going everywhere with Him. The Spirit may move left or the Spirit may move right, and you have to move too to keep in step. It doesn't matter where He leads you. You just need to go in step with Him. It doesn't matter what terrible circumstances you face. You keep in step with the Spirit. It doesn't matter who you encounter or what they do to you. You keep in step with the Spirit. It's like a beautiful dance. When a husband leads his wife around the dance floor, he kindly leads and she flawlessly keeps in step so that the beauty of the dance can be on full display to all watching. So is our cooperation with the Spirit. You step onto that floor with him and the two of you keeping in step creates this stunning display of freedom. Moving where he moves, loving what he loves, being joyful in what he takes joy in, showing gentleness when he is gentle. Keeping in step will produce beautiful, beautiful fruit. Doing so will demonstrate that you are living by the Spirit. Doing so will be liberating for you. Doing so will give you meaning in this life. Doing so will honor Christ who died so that you may walk this path of freedom. 
One final thought. Do you know why you have the Spirit? It's because Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much that not only did he buy your freedom with his own body and blood, but his heart for you is that for you to live free for freedom in, a, in an internal state of freedom. And so because he loves you, he gave you his spirit to live in you all your days that you might step in freedom every single day of your life on earth until you meet your savior face to face. So let's do that, shall we, church? Let us keep in step with the Spirit as we live in the freedom Christ has won for us until we reach our eternal home of freedom and we see our Savior face to face. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you this morning. We thank you that we can celebrate freedom. We thank you that our freedom has been won by Christ that he went to the cross after living a, sin, a sinless life, and that he died for us, he was buried and rose again the third day, that all who might believe in him, might believe in the name of Jesus, might have life, might have this freedom. And Father, we thank you that you have given to us your spirit. And as we've considered this morning, there is a lot to this idea of walking by the spirit. And Father, I pray for each, each of my brothers and sisters here. I pray for myself. May you show us how to walk by the spirit. May you show us where we are not walking by the Spirit. And may you, may you give us strength to walk by the Spirit. And may we, in everything, keep in step with Him. Father, we thank you for this passage that convicts and that encourages. May your word be a blessing to your people. We love you. May you take our lives and let it be consecrated always to thee. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.